from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sangmin from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Let me get a second. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, March 12th. Today, the international response to new U.S. travel restrictions, rethinking sick leave in America, and what's next for the NBA. President Trump has talked about the coronavirus over the past few weeks, but he's really downplayed the severity of it. But on Wednesday night, that changed. My fellow Americans, tonight I want to speak with you about our nation's unprecedented response to the coronavirus outbreak that started in China and is now spreading throughout the world. He made a very serious speech from the Oval Office in prime time to talk about the virus and its impact on the United States and what he would do to try to help stem its spread. Katie Zesma is a national correspondent for The Post. After consulting with our top government health professionals, I have decided to take several strong but necessary actions to protect the health and well-being of all Americans. So President Trump's announcement on Wednesday was largely focused on the U.S. economy, which is continuing to slide amid global economic fears. The president asked Congress to provide payroll tax relief and to direct the Small Business Administration to provide low-interest loans to people who are affected by the coronavirus. The president also asked the Treasury Department to defer tax payments without interest or penalties for these people. To ensure that working Americans impacted by the virus can stay home without fear of financial hardship, I will soon be taking emergency action, which is unprecedented, to provide financial relief. What Trump didn't fully address was the lack of coronavirus testing here in the United States and how the virus is already spreading within communities. And then he also talked about travel restrictions. Who is going to be able to travel to the U.S.? He did. And there's been a lot of confusion on that. He first said his restrictions on travel were a total ban. To keep new cases from entering our shores, we will be suspending all travel from Europe to the United States for the next 30 days. The new rules will go into effect Friday at midnight. And he also said that it would apply to cargo and trade as well. But after the announcement, he corrected himself, he and his aides, and they said that trade will not be affected and that the restrictions don't apply to American citizens or legal permanent residents or their families. So there, there, there was quite a bit of confusion last night, but we know right now that it does not apply to trade or cargo and that American citizens, legal permanent residents and their family members are exempt from this. And just for the record, I mean, I think that that was a, a pretty surprising moment to a lot of Americans that President Trump makes this big address from the Oval Office that that talks about these sweeping measures that are being put in place, but that it's not actually correct or not actually reflective of, of what the current state of things are, and that it added a lot of confusion to the situation. It did. It added a lot of confusion to the situation, especially considering that the corrections came quickly. You know, it's good that they were corrected quickly, but I think for that time, and, and even still this morning, there is a lot of confusion still, and especially in Europe where Americans may be trying to get back, they, they are confused as well. 
And so as we understand it right now, American citizens or legal permanent residents or their families are allowed back into the U.S. at any point in coming weeks and months, but that for foreign nationals, there are more limitations. So talk to me more about what is happening for people abroad who are trying to travel to the U.S. who are not citizens and are not legal permanent U.S. residents. So one thing about this travel announcement is that the United Kingdom is exempt from this travel announcement. So this is continental Europeans who will not be able to enter the United States, but people from the UK can as well. And that has also sparked a lot of confusion. DHS Secretary Chad Wolf has said that he will issue a supplemental notice requiring U.S. passengers who have been in the Schengen area, it's 26 countries in Europe, to travel through specific airports in the U.S. where the government has implemented enhanced screening procedures to look for coronavirus. And this idea that the EU was really taken by surprise about this, that's what we have heard from some of our colleagues in, in foreign over the past 24 hours. I'm in Brussels right now where European officials are really just stunned at the travel ban that was announced. Michael Birnbaum, who is in Brussels, he said that there was this real sense of shock and honestly, like, disappointment with the U.S., that this wasn't something that was discussed before. That's really something that I was pretty surprised by, how forceful they were in condemning the the U.S. moves, President Trump's moves. There's clearly a lot of frustration today and a sense that there isn't coordination right now, that there's a real breakdown in communications between the United States and the European Union. And then we also heard from Rick Nowak, who is in Berlin. Trump's announcement of a travel ban is certainly seen by many here as a a politically motivated move. He was saying that there is a concern that this could be part of more nationalistic leanings and how coronavirus is being responded to. I think to many here, it reflects the transatlantic tensions that have risen over the last few years. There's a real concern here that the coronavirus is going to lead to a more nationalistic thinking uh, around the world when this is actually a time when international cooperation would be more needed than ever. Well, the UK and Ireland are both also not in the Schengen zone. But, you know, in the UK, the health minister has tested positive for coronavirus. So, um, you know, on the one hand, it's not the, the country is not in this zone where flights were where travel has been halted. But on the other hand, you know, there are cases spreading there as well. Um, you know, and I think as my colleagues have reported, the, the response from the EU is, is a sign of how little the U.S. and Europe appears to be coordinating the response to this pandemic, which is all over the world right now. And so what do we know about whether or not this travel ban actually has a shot of working? So health experts in the World Health Organization have strongly advised against border closing and travel bans, saying they can hinder the sharing of information, disrupt medical supply chains and have negative economic impacts. I think we've also seen over the past couple of days this growing sense from the international community and from public health officials abroad that they're concerned that the U.S. is not actually doing everything that they need to be doing internally to stop the spread of coronavirus within the U.S. What are some of the other steps that could be taken right now that it doesn't seem like the White House or Congress is actually making happen right now? The director general of the World Health Organization said on Tuesday that 
he and the body are concerned about the alarming levels of spread and severity and, quote, the alarming levels of inaction. And he didn't name any specific countries, but it appears to be directed squarely at the United States. We've seen cases here since January, but significant steps to help stem the spread were really just taking place in the last 72 hours or so. Um, You know, things that public health officials say are helpful are, it's called social distancing. State, don't go to an office. Don't ride the subway. Try to cancel non-essential gatherings, cancel large gatherings. So what we're seeing right now are governors and local officials taking these steps. In New York on Monday, Governor Andrew Cuomo declared a containment zone in the city of New Rochelle, where they've had more than 100 cases of, of diagnosed coronavirus. So it's not a lockdown. People can come and go, but schools are closed in the zone, and they're working on a list of other places where people congregate. In Washington State, Governor Jay Inslee banned gatherings of more than 250 people in in three counties, including the county that holds Seattle. And the county executive in Seattle went even further and uh, barred gatherings of more than 150 people and said that if there are gatherings happening, they really need to to show that they are taking steps to mitigate the spread of this virus, which means keeping people you know, three to six feet away from each other, sanitizing things. In Ohio, Governor Mike DeWine has barred most large public gatherings as a way to spread this. He said, you know, we here in the United States have the potential to become like Italy, where the virus is running rampant and hospitals are completely overwhelmed. And he wants to try to stem this spread right now. But the fact that so many of those aggressive and urgent actions are happening from governors and from mayors, I think, is in some ways at odds with what it looks like is happening on the federal level and especially with the White House and with Congress that seems a lot more mired in the bureaucracy of trying to get something done to stop this. You know, one thing that, w- that was really notable was on Tuesday, there are all these photos from inside of Congress where public tours are still happening and large numbers of people are gathering in very, very close proximity to, to one another. So, you know, it was only today that we've heard of, of congressional staff closing their offices. There are have been a number of representatives and senators who have been in quarantine after coming into contact with an infected person at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Committee meeting uh, last month in a Washington suburb. But it really is local health officials, uh, governors, and organizations that are taking the most dramatic steps right now to try to stem the spread of this virus by canceling very large gatherings and saying to people, listen, we really don't want you to be congregating right now. Katie Zesma is a national correspondent for The Post. Today we'll bring to the floor our family's first legislation. Uh, which Democrats in the House are working with the administration on a multi-billion dollar spending bill for coronavirus response. It would provide free coronavirus testing and add to programs like unemployment insurance. So that everyone will be tested and no one will say, I can't afford it, so I can't. And that's not a good idea when it comes to public health. But one of the sticking points is a major expansion to paid sick leave. And that's an issue that has become a big concern in how quickly the virus is spreading. The CDC was telling people, stay home if you're sick. For a lot of people we know from covering 
everything from nursing homes to retail, that a lot of people lose money if they stay home, if they have the sniffles or a fever or whatever. So we wanted to find out what kind of policies there were for people who, who should be staying home. My name is Jordan Anderson. I'm 44. I live in Portland, Oregon, and I'm a full-time, full-service Instacart shopper. So she receives no paid sick leave and said she simply can't afford to take a day off. I have migraines. Probably at least one a week is a, is a real whiz-bang who, you know, like, I'll lose vision in one of my eyes. I'll be very nauseous that kind of thing, and I just have to go out there and work. She's multiple times has thrown up in the parking lot and then just gone in, washed her hands, and continued shopping for people's groceries. You know, you throw up, and then you go inside, and you wash your hands, and you start shopping. I'm Ava Badarai, and I'm the retail reporter here at The Washington Post. I'm Peter Wariski. I'm also a reporter at The Post. And is there any evidence to suggest that having paid sick leave and allowing people to stay home actually has an effect on the spread of something like a coronavirus outbreak? Yes. There's some really interesting research by a professor at Cornell, as well as some of his colleagues, where they looked at flu rates. They use CDC data, but they also use Google flu data and looked at states that had sick pay requirements and those that didn't. And there was about a 10% drop in the flu spread in the states that had forced companies to give you sick pay. Really? So just by putting a medical leave policy in place and letting people take off work and still get paid, that actually had an effect in, in terms of transmission rates? That's what they saw in the study, yeah. So you guys talked to some workers who were kind of weighing what to do right now, whether to stay home and try to stay away from coronavirus or to go to work and actually get paid. What were some of the stories that you heard from people? So I talked to more than a dozen workers. And the thing that really struck me is that every single one of them had a story about working through some sort of awful ailment, bronchitis, pneumonia, the flu, you know, a pulled muscle in their back, and they're still lifting 40 or 50 pounds at work. And there was just a sense that they couldn't afford to call in sick. And even if they did, they felt like they would be letting people down. There was this collective sense that, you know, they weren't pulling their weight at work, and they would perhaps be disciplined for that. And I think it's also worth pointing out that some of these people are people who are preparing food, who, in my case, I would not want people who are actively sick, who might be coughing or sneezing or whatever, making my food. Absolutely. Or it's the people who are picking out your groceries at the supermarket and delivering them to your home um, as more and more people try to stay home to avoid going to crowded places. Yeah, I think the scariest, though, was the woman who calls out bingo at the nursing home. You just don't want somebody with covid at the nursing home. Because there are so many people who are super vulnerable who could catch it. Right, the most vulnerable. And as coronavirus has become more and more of a serious threat, are people who don't have access to paid leave, are they thinking about making different decisions and and maybe taking the hit financially because it's become such an urgent public health threat? I mean, I think they're all, all weighing this. They're not sure. And so many of them say they're just washing their hands obsessively and using hand sanitizer and hoping for the best. But we're also starting to see some companies, some large employers, introduce new policies. Darden Restaurants, which owns the Olive Garden Capitol Grill, a bunch of other restaurants, is now offering paid sick leave to its employees. And other employers like Walmart, Apple, Lyft, and Uber are now allowing people to take time off if they get sick. 
But are there any laws around actually requiring that companies give paid leave to workers? Yeah, there's about a dozen states that say if uh, employers of certain size, you have to give sick pay. On the other hand, there's almost equivalent number of states where they don't have any rule and then they won't allow any city or county to even pass a rule like that. And what is the thinking behind that? Why would a, a state or a county want to mandate that there can't be any regulations in terms of letting people take sick leave? The argument is that if you had a city or county setting a rule um, and another one setting up a different rule, you'd end up with a patchwork of regulation that could be difficult for companies. Like if so, for example, if you are a pizza hut and you have give stores all around the country that if some workers are required to get paid sick leave and if other workers are not required to get paid sick leave, then things would get really complicated and it would be difficult to have a standardized system. Right. Yes, you could do that, but those states are not doing that. I mean, there's what's interesting about a lot of those states that are saying cities and counties, you can't regulate it. The states aren't regulating it either. So what the impact of this is, is that nobody is required to give paid sick leave. And that's one of the reasons why one in four people in the United States don't have sick leave. So what do these business owners or, or what do companies say about why this isn't more of a standard practice or why they wouldn't want to put this in place considering that it puts both their workforce and their customers at risk? It's money. You know, some of the, the nursing home association that I talked to, for example, said, look, our reimbursements from the federal government for taking care of uh, a patient are, are so low. We don't have the resources to do it. We're doing everything we can. Um, and that's across the board. There are other people who say, look, employers should have flexibility in dealing with their customers as well as their employees. I think that this debate over paid sick leave is really interesting because it seems that up until this point, the rationale behind letting businesses decide for themselves whether or not they're going to offer paid sick leave is because of money and because it costs a lot to give people paid sick leave, because it could hurt their business if they're having to pay all these people extra money. But it feels like we're getting to this point where the opposite thing is kind of happening, that because coronavirus is spreading, because we don't have these public health policies in place that can keep people home and, and keep people quarantined, that that is having an effect on businesses and having an effect on their ability to make money in a way that maybe they hadn't thought about when they were considering their paid sick leave policy. Yeah, that's the case. Because what you see is that before businesses expressed to worry that maybe you'd have people calling in sick when they were really not sick. But now the worry is people will show up when they're sick. Abba Batarai and Peter Woriski report for the Business Desk at The Post. And now, one more thing. My name is Ben Golliver, and I'm the national NBA writer for The Washington Post. On Wednesday, the entire basketball world sat around waiting for the NBA to make a decision about how it was going to handle the coronavirus outbreak here in the United States. Now, there was widespread speculation that the NBA would go to 
uh, fanless uh, games. In other words, only essential personnel and media members would be able to attend games in person. And the NBA's Board of Governors joined each other on a conference call to discuss that possibility as well as the possibility of suspending or postponing the rest of the season. After that phone call, though, there was no resolution, and NBA games went on Wednesday night with thousands of fans in attendance, just like usual. Unfortunately, after the NBA did not make a decision on how it would handle the coronavirus, the decision was made for it, because a member of the Utah Jazz, center Rudy Gobert, was found to have tested positive for the coronavirus earlier on Wednesday, just before the Utah Jazz were about to play the Oklahoma City Thunder. Tonight has been postponed. You are all safe. And take your time in leaving the arena tonight and do so in an orderly fashion. Thank you for coming out tonight. And then shortly after that, the NBA announced in a completely unprecedented move that the rest of the season was going to be suspended indefinitely as they work to gather more information and plan their next steps. Now, the NBA season is about three quarters of the way through. The playoffs are set to start in mid-April, usually, and they run through the end of June. But at this point, there is no more basketball on the docket, and we have no idea whether there will be more games played this season. At this point, we are not aware of any other players uh, who have tested positive, but because of the proximity that players are in relation to each other, whether it's in the locker room, on the team plane, on buses to the arena, and so forth, you know, we're all waiting to find out if there will be any other additional positive tests. Now, the NBA League office has not said much about these occurrences. Essentially, they waited for patient zero uh, before they acted. There are going to be some people, without a doubt, who will question the timing on that decision. Earlier this week, public pressure had mounted from authorities in San Francisco and Ohio who were encouraging uh, the NBA to sort of follow the guidelines set forward by uh, public health officials who had said that uh, you know social distancing was important uh, in helping to control the spread of the coronavirus and that any a mass event where you know 10,000 or more people are coming together at an arena should just be canceled or postponed. The NBA did not initially decide to do that, and I think that uh, that choice will open them up to pretty severe criticism here potentially in the coming days. Ben Golliver reports on the NBA for The Post. On Thursday, the National Hockey League announced that it's temporarily suspending the 2020 season due to coronavirus concerns. And Major League Baseball is delaying opening day by two weeks. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you've got questions about the coronavirus, we'd love to hear them. Post them on Twitter with the hashtag Post Reports, send me a DM, or join the Post Reports Facebook group, where we'll be sharing recent news and stories about what's going on with the outbreak. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.